0: I'm always struggling that when I think it's 50 years since I was abused, and I only just named him. I'm like, Oh, my God, I can't believe that just that it took me that long. It breaks my own heart.
1: Welcome to the Lionhearted, a true crime podcast featuring stories of the brave badasses who spend their lives fighting child sexual abuse. Join me, your host and forensic interviewer, Andrea Harner, as we get up close and personal with these unforgettable stories. Today, we get to hear from Jennifer Fox, the award-winning filmmaker of The Tale, which told the story of her sexual victimization when she was 13 years old by her trusted running coach. 50 years later, you heard me correctly, 5-0, She was able to name her abuser, and the New York Times featured her story on the front page. Why did it take so long? And what has her healing journey been like since coming out as a survivor in 2018? You get to find out now. Quick note, the audio at the end is a little muffled due to the poor internet connection. We are certain you will still enjoy this special episode. Listeners, here's a trigger warning. This show will cover difficult topics, including child sexual abuse. Please take care when listening, and resources will be available in the show notes. Jennifer Fox, we are so thrilled to have you with us today. You are the filmmaker creator of the Emmy-nominated The Tale, which is a film featuring Laura Dern, how about you just tell us briefly what the tale is about for the listeners who have yet to watch it?
0: Great. Well, thank you. The tale is really inspired by my true story, which is up until I was about 45, I actually called what we now know as abuse, a relationship. And I had a quote unquote relationship in my my own mind, a sexual relationship with my track coach who was 40 when I was 13. Because of events that happened in my life, I woke up at age 45 and began to realize that the story I had told myself was different than I had always remembered. And the tale is a chronicle of that investigation into my memory where Laura Dern plays me, Ellen Burstyn plays my mother, Common plays my boyfriend. And it's an incredible journey into memory and abuse.
1: So that came out in 2018, is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's been five years since then. And recently, you were profiled in a New York Times article because you named your abuser. Almost, was it 50 years later?
0: It's exactly 50 years. It's the anniversary.
1: Wow. So before we get into delayed disclosure and the fact that most adults who were victims of child sexual abuse disclose, if ever, between the ages of 50 to 55 on average, I want to talk about how after the film was released... How did you think about yourself? And did it change how you felt about yourself when you sort of reexamined everything that happened and created this piece of art from it?
0: It's a really great question because everybody thinks, oh, my God, making this film must have been so traumatic for you. You're delving into your abuse, et cetera. And I found the creating, writing the script, like a really interesting journey. I found directing it really exciting and amazing. But when it came out and it came out at Sundance 2018, it was a huge success. We got five standing ovations. And there I was, you know, in in these huge auditoriums on the dais and people were applauding me as a representation of sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And it was this kind of kismic moment, which was horrific for me, where I had to accept that, in fact, I was a victim. That may sound crazy to people, because you would think I made a film about being a victim of sexual abuse, but it was something that I always struggled with. The word victim, I hate to this Mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. Even when you just said sexual abuse victims, I flinched. For me, at least we are survivors. I have to say the truth is we are both victims and survivors. And it wasn't until the tale came out that I was sort of forced to put my nose against the truth in such a profound way. And I couldn't escape the victim side of it, that in fact, I had been taken advantage of, that I had been manipulated. All these things that just destroyed my inner agency and that I'd been running away from my entire life after all I created a narrative that said I chose this I'm an adult even though I was a tiny 13 year old I can make decisions the narrative was I'm equal to an adult I know what I'm doing I'm the hero it's even in the tale I mean my child self says I'm the hero of this story But what I never accepted all the way till the film was made and came out was that I'm also a victim. And making the tale set in motion, me actually realized that there was even more to the story than is in the tale. It was the beginning of me realizing that there was an alternate story that I had left let myself know. And that was the part of me, the child part of me that had been severely damaged by the abuse. And what happened after making the tale in the months that ensued is I began to kind of fall apart a bit. Mm. And I was luckily offered by one of my executive producers to work with a really good therapist in um, mind body named Peter Levine. (gasps) You know him.
1: This is an incredible moment. I've just started the three-year somatic experiencing program that is founded by people. I mean, it's been life-changing for me. I can only imagine how that was for you. I would love to hear more about that.
0: Sure. Well, I had an executive producer, this amazing philanthropist named Regina Scully, who had been a big force in financing the film. One of her issues is sexual abuse that she supports. And after it was over, she said to me, Jennifer, look, I know making this film must have been traumatic for you. I'd like to offer to pay for you to see this incredible therapist, Peter Levine. And I can get you into him. And so I started to work with him and it was very synergistic. I've worked a lot with mine. Body Mm. stuff in the past, and what appeared working with him was this alternate story. Right, and the story goes like this. And in order to set it up, I have to explain after my abuse. And if you watch the tale, you'll see that I, quote unquote, broke up with my abuser. Mm -hmm. I told him that I didn't want to see him after a certain period, and you'll see why when you watch the film. But in real life, after I broke up with him ironically a few weeks later my dad asked me into his home office and told me he didn't want me to see Ted Nash anymore and didn't say why and I just said I have already decided not to and he said okay and I left so my parents were kind of slowly catching up with it but too late six weeks after that I got mysteriously sick and I took to my bed And the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong. Like they tested me with mono and they tested me for everything. And it was like, they were completely baffled. But inside myself, even though I didn't call it abuse, I knew that I was digesting what had happened to me. And after about, I don't know, another six weeks, I was in bed a long time. They decided to take my tonsils out. And then miraculously, I got better. So when I worked with Peter, what came to me very clearly was that that time in bed was a kismic turning point for me. And there was sort of a decision to make was was I going to go down the drain? And I mean, die here, basically, or a- end up in the mental hospital is how I would have framed it. Hmm. Or was I going to survive? Right. And in the work with Peter... I literally saw that I made this decision that I was not Mm. going to die here. And that I cut off the damaged part and left her there on the floor. The part of me that was a hero, that was not afraid of things, that would face challenges, that would go out into the world, got up and went on. And the damaged part remained. And of course the damaged part is the victim part. It's all the parts of undigested suffering and anger and rage and destruction. And so after the tale, this other part of me became apparent. And I began to work with that, which I've been doing all these years, actually, to kind of integrate and be able to accept the part of me that was a victim, and to also accept that I wasn't seen by my abuser. I was literally manipulated and abused for his pleasure. And so integrating this other side of the story, and in doing so, that also pretty quickly began to give me the idea that it was time to out him and to name him And I was finally ready. And again, I was in my late 50s at the time. And because of the changing laws, you were able to actually, in civil court, go Mm -hmm. after abusers because the statute of limitations had been paused in certain states. So I technically could have taken a civil suit against Ted Nash, my abuser. But what happened was I found... A lawyer, and as soon as he looked him up, he discovered that Ted Nash was basically broke. Hmm. His house was worth worth like two hundred twenty five thousand in New Jersey, which told the lawyer that there was no money to be had. Right, and since I I wasn't abused under the auspices of an institution, I couldn't get a lawyer to take the case to sue him. And so uh, once again, I was left like I guess there's nothing I can do. And then at another point. I thought, well, maybe if I could get a private detective to see if there were other girls like me who had been abused by Ted, we could get a group of us to stand up and do a press conference. We weren't able to do that because the cost of a private eye was so very, very expensive. Mm. It comes in at like 10 to 20 K a month. And usually they ask for six months to the, a year. And I just didn't have that kind of extra income. So time went on. I continued to do other work and in my own process. And then Ted Nash died about two years ago now. So it would have been 2021. And it was pretty horrible because there was all these festivities and he was fetid and he was sort of seen as the grandfather of rowing. He was lionized and made into this incredible icon in all sorts of magazines and newspapers. And regattas were named after him. His main sport is rowing. He was a bronze and gold medalist
1: in Mm. the Olympics.
0: And then he had taught rowing at Penn from I think late sixties to 82. And then he had continued to coach rowing at the Olympics for like 30 years. He was a big champion of course. Of women's rowers, as you can imagine. But anyway, when he died, I was so upset and shocked by this canonizing of him. Again, Mm. I was like, I didn't know what to do. But since I had exhausted all these avenues, I just let it alone. And then a year later, a friend of mine who was with me that summer, 1973, Pamela Knapp, her married name is Burdette, but Pamela and Burdett. She called me infuriated when she found out what had happened when Ted died.
1: Hmm. And she
0: said, I want to call Safe Sport. I want to tell them about him and maybe they'll do something. And she said, may I do that on your behalf? And I said, sure. And she did. And they said, but we can't do anything because he's dead. So once again the ball was back in my court and right. I called them and, and they suggested I call US Rowing and then US Rowing suggested I write a letter which I did and literally the next day to US Rowing's credit the head of US Rowing called me Amanda Kraus and she said she saw the tale and she was very very positive and supportive of my accusations but she said she would have to check with the board if they were able to investigate. And in the meantime, I contacted the New York Times and the writer there went before her editors and it took them a while, but they decided they would do an article. And the article really pressed U.S. Rowing to actually launch an investigation, which they did pretty much in sync with the article. And we have yet to hear what the investigation will find. And it's not a legal investigation. Mm -hmm. It's simply to find out, are my accusations against Ted Nash credible? And they will simply lean one direction or another. If so, the goal is to get his name taken off things. The University of Pennsylvania has a wing named after him, Mm. which since the article they've covered up until this investigation is revealed.
1: Wow. Okay, so change is already happening in some small ways. And we wait to hear from after this investigation. I want to point out something that you just did, which I love, and I think is so important. You called out people, specifically their names, the people who have helped you along the way. First with Regina Scully. And then I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the the woman, but who was a girl at the time. That Nap- Yes. And then the woman, Amanda, Amanda Krauss. Exactly. I think this is such an important part of stories is to give people credit where credit is due, because no one can do anything alone. Certainly not something of this magnitude. We all need helpers, right?
0: If Amanda Krauss hadn't taken my letter seriously, we wouldn't be here today. And there have been incidences in the past with U.S. rowing that mm-hmm. I know about where previous presidents didn't take sexual abuse claims seriously. So I am so grateful to her. And then the writer Jules McCur
1: mm-hmm. wrote
0: for the New York Times was a mm-hmm. big champion of it. I mean, it ended up being a front page, very long and in depth article, which I was shocked at.
1: Honestly, I was shocked too when I read it. First of all, I, I couldn't believe that it was as in depth as it was. I was so impressed and surprised. And so I love that you call her out as well, because like you said, I think the truth is, and I've said this from the beginning, most adults are not brave. And I think it's a shame that we expect kids to be brave when their brains aren't fully developed, when they've been victimized. You know, we will say, oh, it's so brave you spoke out about the abuse Or sometimes we'll say, why didn't they speak out? And it's completely wrong to put that on them. Adults need to be brave for kids. But most of the time, adults are not brave for a number of reasons. So I love that you're highlighting the adults that were brave. And I wanted to change gears just a little bit. I'm always tickled by the sort of incongruencies or irony of things. And I wondered if you have thoughts about this. I just love documentaries. That's my number one love media-wise. And you're a documentary filmmaker by trade. So your job was to peer into other people's lives, their inner lives, and document that, bring out the humanity, the struggle, all of that. And yet you had this unexplored life within yourself. I wonder how you have thought about that Mm,
0: that's a beautiful question i think we all struggle to see ourselves it's of course easier to see others Mm. but getting good mirrors in your life is really really hard and i am privileged to be a filmmaker and i've always used films as a self-reflection and sometimes it's amazing to what end it takes you before you see something But before the tale, I mean, I made many films, but one of them was a six part series on what does it mean to be a woman today and female sexuality that I'm in. And I put myself in that film and in the journey of making it was when I first realized that I had been abused. I was 45. But here I am, this lucky person who gets to use my art Mm -hmm. to actually see myself in the same way the tale helped me see more as well. It's just so hard Mm. to promote change in oneself. I'm always struggling that When I think it's 50 years since I was abused and I only just named him, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that it took me that long. It breaks my own heart. And yet it's still a positive story because some people never name their abusers. But I think it is really hard to see ourselves. And I think I always say I teach a lot, you know, by any means necessary, Mm. because as a filmmaker, you can only be as good of a filmmaker as you are a person. Mm. So the more you can see yourself, the better a filmmaker you are as well. I say, you know, use therapy, use meditation, Mm. use dance, use anything like spirituality, whatever is going to help you get reflection.
1: I love that so much, Jennifer. You can only give what you have. So you have to work on yourself first, right? Like you said, I think a lot of people, I would argue, maybe run from those mirrors. And again, it's an act of bravery to look in the mirror, be willing to have that self-reflection. And you're fortunate enough that, like you said, your work is that as well
0: well you know understanding also that we're all in a trance that we're in a societal trance Mm. we're in our own the family of origin trance where Mm. if we have our own family we're in that trance we're all brainwashed in multiple ways and it's very very hard to break the trance we're in it's just hard yes If if it was easy we'd all be enlightened you know yeah
1: (laughs) that's such a good point. I'm going to be thinking about that. That is absolutely true. Jennifer, I want to talk about delayed disclosure. And I've heard you say recently, you've brought up an analogy that really resonated with me. And I'd love for you to share that with our listeners.
0: Sure. The truth is, I really understand how hard it is for people to comprehend why it takes so long for people to disclose that they've been abused. Because I don't understand it. It took me a really long time to figure out why it didn't take me so long to disclose. And I think it's the insidious nature of abuse that nobody actually recognizes. And it came to me, and this is without any judgment, both are horrendous, but it's to compare rape and sexual abuse may help us out here. That when a person's been raped, they know that the person attacking them is bad. They want to get away. They try to scream. They try to run. Everything is on alert. But with sexual abuse, it's the complete opposite. You actually think that the person in front of you has your best interests in mind, that they probably love you, even, that they're caring for you. And even while things are going off inside of you like little red bells that you shouldn't be doing this. Everything that they've taught you is to trust them. So it's this insidious manipulation that gets into your psychology and I think literally into your fiber and your cells. And I like to make the analogy that rape is like being like skewered with a sword. But sexual abuse is like getting shot with a bullet that shatters into a thousand pieces inside of you. And then it takes decades to start to pick out those pieces and to put them together into one whole. And sometimes it never even happens. So it took me decades. I mean, as I said to you earlier, I am shocked it's fifty years since I was abused and I'm just viewing my abuser. I mean... How could it take that long to actually wake up? But in fact, it did.
1: I totally get it. I both understand how the general public doesn't understand that it takes decades. But I also understand how for survivors, it's just the ultimate confusion.
0: That's what I would say, too. Confusion is that you're so confused for so long. Like, what happened there? How did that happen? Right. Wait a second, why yeah. do I feel so bad? But like he cares or she cares about me.
1: Exactly. Um, it
0: goes on and on and on. Right. I mean, I was saying to you, I was technically only sexually abused by Ted Nash, mm-hmm. but I was groomed by Ted Nash and his lover, my riding coach. Right. And it was my riding coach that brought me to Ted Nash and basically delivered me to him on a platter and left me at his house on the weekends. Yet, I know by this point, 50 years later, that she absolutely had a hand in my abuse and that she was a procurer much the way like Giselle Maxwell was with Epstein. And still, I have trouble dating her. It's easier for me to hate him at this point, after decades, because there was clear, physical boundary breaking. But right. with her, who had as much to do with my abuse as he did, it's very hard to break the code of childish love and adoration I had for her. And it took me 15 years to break that for him. And also what we don't realize is that wrapped into abuse is always a code of silence. And literally when I was about to, you can't see me, but I have my hands around my throat when I was about to finish with the New York Times writer, the New York Times article. And the day before it was about to come out, I felt like I had hands around my throat because it was like, here I was doing the opposite of what I've been groomed to do, which was sleep.
1: Right.
0: And the thing that you're implicitly or explicitly told by abusers is never tell. Right. Never tell or your whole life will fall apart. Never tell or or they'll get you. Never tell or, or, or. And so that's another thing that's there. Don't scream. Don't talk out loud. Don't tell. That is all rolled into sexual abuse. And so there's so many barriers to putting these pieces together. There's so many barriers to speaking up that are really insidious.
1: To use your word insidious, I think the other part of it, of the grooming process, is that because you're not held by gunpoint, right, because you are manipulated, you as the victim and survivor, you're made to think that you were complicit in some way. And so then there's the shame, which also forces you to keep it secret, right? And I want to go back to the part about how hard it is to speak up because you may believe the person loved you or you may have loved this person. Well, first of all, it's really hard for people, even adults, to hold two disparate thoughts in their head at one time. So to ask a child whose survival depends often on their abuser in some way or another, whether it's parents or a coach, that's just too much. And that's overwhelming. And so I think your brain has to do like mental gymnastics to make it right. And so all these layers, like you said, keep the truth from coming out. And meanwhile, you're still trying to reconcile the ultimate cognitive dissonance, right, that's going on in your brain. So about your bullet analogy, I wonder now, looking back at your life, what are some areas that were maybe shocking to you or unexpected that these bullet fragments had lodged into?
0: As I look back now, I see that, in fact, there was a big hit in my psyche that I was now damaged goods. I'm 63, so I was born in the late 50s. My mom was a 50s mom. And we definitely were raised with the idea of virginity. Mm-hmm. Like, you shouldn't have have sex till you're married. And I don't know if it's that or other things, but definitely I realized looking back that the event of a cruise made me feel damaged. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it was that I lost my or simply that I lost my virginity in such a bad way without love Hmm. that I can say that after that, sexuality was about trying to repair and regroup that initial moment Hmm. and try to make it right again. Of course, you can never make it right because it's gone. You know, the irony is like the soul wants the first sexual experience to be beautiful and loving. And when it's not, it's like a real tear on your soul. And so I can see in my younger life that I kept trying to have sex to make it right. Mm. And I couldn't make it right. That's one thing. But on the other hand, I also felt damaged. Mm. And I have often wondered if my journey looking for a love partner has often been affected by that in the sense that I never felt I could actually have a fully loving relationship and partner. That's for other people who have normal lives and they can be happy, but not me because I am not good enough. Now, I'm telling you something that I could never have said 10 years ago. And it's just the accumulation of self-discovery about how the abuse has affected me. Now, I know there are plenty of abused women who are in good relationships. I'm not saying that's indicative, but the damage and the shame is insidious and it affects everybody differently. And I think for me also, it left a real scar on trust. You know, again, wouldn't have said this sooner, but I definitely have realized late in the last years that I have real issues trusting Mm. that if somebody wants to be with me, there must be ulterior motives, whatever they are, you know, but it certainly isn't because I'm lovable and worth loving. So there are all these weird scars that Mm. happen. And I'm not saying they're all from abuse but a lot of them were branded on me from
1: the abuse. Yeah, I really hear that. And I just want to call out what you're saying, which is that this experience of feeling damaged, unlovable, that's very common. Um, at the same time, I think it's important what you pointed out, which is that trauma manifests differently in every exactly. single person. Exactly. Um
0: And that may be confusing for the outsiders. There isn't one cookie-cutter
1: mold. That actually reminds me of the last time that I testified as a forensic interviewer um, for a girl who I interviewed when she was six or seven. And this case was unusual in that it was actually being prosecuted here in L.A., And I went to testify because I was her forensic interviewer. And so the interview was played, and she's telling horrific stuff. But keep in mind her age, and she's just telling it like it happened because she didn't have the shame part yet and the self-consciousness that you see as kids get older, right? And I remember being asked by the prosecutor to explain to the jury why she seems unaffected or can talk about this very casually. And I had to explain that, first of all, there's no one way to react to child sexual abuse. There's a whole gamut of reactions based on age, based on personality, based on various things. And to
0: that point, don't underestimate the power and value of disassociation. My own story taught me how deeply I disassociated the painful parts. So, when I told you the story that I took to my bed and seriously sick, and after about six weeks, they took my tonsil out and I miraculously time that's a story of disassociation where out of that experience, I got up and I disassociated the, the painful and the damaged parts of me. And I disassociated them. Until I was in my mid-40s. Right. Because I had to survive. survive.
1: Exactly. The choice
0: in my mind was a mental hospital or disassociate and survive. Except for I didn't know that I was doing, I was on automatic. And remember that human beings are survivors first. So if disassociation is necessary, we will do it. We will cut off our arm. It's in the trap in order to go on and live. And this happens over and over again in big and small ways. So when you see a child telling it like that, her damaged part yep. is disassociating it. It's basically when the ego can handle the information. Mm. And in my case, it was in my mid-40s where I finally was strong enough to mm. stay awake. Maybe I was abused. Maybe somebody took advantage of me. And that was the first moment in my life where I could actually even think of the V word. Because the V word victim would have killed me more than being abused.
1: You didn't have the capacity before then.
0: No. And yet on the outside, nobody would have known that. Here I was a highly functioning, very successful filmmaker, Mm -hmm. traveling around the world, having relationships.
1: Mm.
0: So it was invisible to the eye.
1: Right. Oh my goodness. Jennifer, this has been such an incredible conversation, even greater and deeper than I would have even imagined. Thank you so much. I want to ask if there's anything that you want to bring up before we close out with some lighter questions I like to ask.
0: Sure. I wanted to say look for support, look for people who understand. If you can do the work in any way possible and doing the work may be with a loving partner, someone Mm -hmm. who really can hear you. It's not necessarily with a licensed therapist.
1: Well, thank you so much again, Jennifer. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank
0: you so much.
1: And that concludes Jennifer's episode of The Lionhearted. I've often accused adults' brains of being lazy we take mental shortcuts and we don't do the work of connecting the adult that's disclosing in front of us to the child that was victimized. And that's why art is so important to make that connection for the viewer. Jennifer does this beautifully and effectively in the tale, and it's available to watch on Macs as well as Amazon Prime, among other platforms. It's also being used as educational material for law enforcement and legal professionals, which I was thrilled to hear about. I'm all for using art and entertainment to change hearts and minds. Stories are what we're made of, and stories are what connect us. We hope you enjoy Jennifer's story today, and if you haven't watched the tale, go watch it now. Thank you so much for listening. The Lionhearted is produced by Amanda Kelso and me, Andrea Harner. Special thanks goes to Kevin Tossi for editing, and of course to our guest, Jennifer Fox. Follow us at LionHeartedPod on Instagram and all the other social channels. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. If you enjoyed today's episode, we would so appreciate you sharing it. Lastly, I want to leave you with a question. Who in your world is LionHearted? Let us know at LionHeartedPod at gmail.com. And thank you so much for listening.